Hi, I'm Tara. And I'm Steph. And we're from Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors. And our team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. With Kobo Writing Life, authors can now publish audiobooks and ebooks right in their KWL account. We don't ask for exclusivity and you'll always control your pricing in up to 16 currencies. You can also create a pre-order for your audio and ebooks with no date limitations. We have a lot of great promotional opportunities for Kobo Writing Life authors available in the promotions tab right in their KWL dashboard. If you're an author and you don't have access to the promotions or audiobooks tab, email us at writinglife@kobo.com and we'll get you sorted. We're all about providing excellent support. Create your free account today at kobo.com/writinglife. If you want to learn more about Kobo Writing Life, check out our blog, podcast, and find us on social. Happy writing! Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business: editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author JD Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers Inc. JD, when support's going to be done? <laughs> I actually gave these guys a deadline. Like when, when they came in here, they said, oh, it's going to be three weeks from start to finish. And they started April 2nd. And, and like they're, they're still out there. So I gave them an email on, on Friday or sent them one and just said, you've got until next next Friday. If you're not done, as far as I'm concerned, you've abandoned the project and I'm going to hire somebody else. And they, they've had people out there all this week. So I'm hoping that they can wrap it up because I just I really want these guys out of here. Um, so, yeah, if you hear some banging, that that's what's going on. They're, they're right outside my, my office window right now. You gotta finish it while you still have good weather left this season. That's the thing, yeah. Like, well, we've got all these other projects that are backing up. Like, they have to get done before the garage people can come in and finish what they need to do. And um, my wife wants to convert our old garage into a gym, and that can't happen until we're out of the old garage. And it, so it's like this domino effect. Like, everything is just kind of sitting there. And if, if snow hits the ground, then we're screwed. We have to wait until next year because it's just it's too cold, and nobody's gonna do anything out there. So we'll see. Speaking of speaking of wives, I just got a, a text from her. Like she she's got a Jeep Wrangler right now, and she's her lease is up, and I I think like another month and a half. So she's been out car shopping. She just sent me a picture of a Porsche 911. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, family she's a, car. Yeah, fam, family car. Well, she had she's always had sports cars, you know. So that that was kind of her thing. She's always had manual transmissions. Like her, her father taught her on a manual when she was you know when she was 15, 16, and that's what she's always had. So she's always had fast sports cars. And then we had a baby, and obviously it's you know tricky to, to put a car seat in a, a Miata or a two-seater um, so we ended up getting the Jeep Wrangler um, just to give her something you know that, that felt a little sporty um, you know but it had some room in it um, but she's jonesy for that sports car again and like I know she was looking at like SUVs and stuff like that but I think the whole idea of going into any kind of minivan mom car is just like scaring the crap out of her so she found uh, the 911s actually have a back seat um, so she's all, all stoked about that but uh, we'll we'll see <laughs> she, she may be pulling up in a 911 sometime soon <laughs> Her her little real estate business a portion of the Barker household is, is doing really well. So it must be. I was going to say yeah. business must be good in the Barker household. A lot of people renting cabins in Tennessee. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't know why. Is that you, Zach? Are you renting out the property down there? No, it's not me. I love going there, though. I love Gatlinburg. I haven't been in a long time. But uh, it's it's just it's a super popular spot, so it doesn't surprise me that you're uh, 
that your cabin is running out a lot. So, well, one of the things we've noticed, and I don't want to get too far into the you know bigger pockets real estate podcast here, but um, we've got a pool that's inside the cabin, so it's yeah. like a, it's it's an indoor pool, and, and that's huge from a rental standpoint. Like that's what's getting us the bookings, and uh, you know the pool cabins actually sell for an outrageous amount of money. And one of the things we were talking about last night is just buying cabins that don't have them and putting pools on them and then flipping them. Um, because for whatever reason, the investors in that area haven't seemed to figure out that you can add a pool after the house has been built, you know, it's like, now, yeah, yeah, now, now, now they all know, but you know, that's like a 30 or $40,000 expense audience we got. Yeah. Well, you know, one of these days we have to have a, a, some, some type of show about the finances of being a writer and and like where, what you should do with your money when it actually comes in. Like, you know, we, I've mentioned before, we do a lot of passive income type stuff and real estate and investing and things like that. And, you know, like if if the, if I didn't sell any more books, we could live off of all that. And I think it's, it's really important to have that kind of financial stability. Um, That won't be a divisive episode at all. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. It's funny, my buddy David, when who who I was kind of I recommend you two to talk to about your cabins. When I I told him about the place you got, I think I showed it to him, and he was like, "Well, I hope he has good luck with that because that is a party house." (laughs) That was his first thing he said. He was like, "That is a party house. That's not like a place where families would go." So you might be dealing with some some damage at some point. She's pretty good at screening screening out the the riffraff. Like it it says on the the ad, it sleeps I think ten people, and like we had somebody that contacted her the other day, and he was like, "Well, can we get seventeen in there?" I'm like, "No, it it sleeps." Was it Jay? Because that's about how many we try to get for our riding retreats. (laughs) It was it was the exact number. It was all the kids. Um, we, we've been looking at, like, I, I didn't realize what kind of market this really is. We've been looking in Orlando too. And some of the places down there are, are crazy. Like they're like the houses are themed, which I, I never even considered before, but like we saw one, a real estate agent sent us the pictures of it. It had four bedrooms. One of them had a Harry Potter bedroom. And like, it literally looked like you were standing in the Harry Potter set. Um, another bedroom was star Wars. The, the pool outside was like in a, a cave with like all kinds of, you know, cool lighting and stuff going on. It looked like you were on a Disney ride. And apparently that's like a thing down there. So like people rent these houses, you know, rather than staying on Disney property. Um, but they, you know, at this point they expect them to be on par with a Disney property. So yeah, it's, it's a crazy, crazy world out there, but it's it's, it's an easy way to make money. It sounds like a Dracul uh, merch tie-in there somehow. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, somewhere near the foyer when they're coming in and out, I have to have like a little stand selling books and memorabilia and T-shirts, <laughs> and you know, just like the Disney ride, you get off the, you get out of the car, and they try to sell you something. We got to do the same thing. Well, I was gonna say you could maybe rent out a room at your house you're in now. Like, you know, have you ever dreamed of staying at a house that always has construction going on? You know, you <laughs> yeah. could have like Bob the Builder in the in there and stuff. The construction ride. You never know. It's worth a shot. And anyway, back to what we're supposed to be talking yeah, about. Yeah, what's, what's uh, this podcast about? We're, t- we're supposed to talk about books, right? It's, it's about film and TV, right? Because I I, I wanted to, to throw a shout out to Grady. I, I noticed that Charlize Theron just attached herself to the, the final uh, final girl support group um, tel- or movie or TV show. I'm not sure which one it is. She, she was listed as an executive producer, though. Nice. Um, I've, I've got a subscription to IMDb Pro, so like all these things kind of pop up on there, and I saw it the uh, day before yesterday. So congrats, Grady, if you're listening. That's awesome. Nice, nice. Also related, uh, want to mention that if you listen to the show on iTunes and notice that last Monday, Riley Sager's episode was not appearing in iTunes until Tuesday, uh, why don't you email Apple and let them know that you're not too happy about that? <laughs> because uh, we distribute the podcast the same way every week. I uh, hit all platforms, RSS feeds, websites, except for Apple. Uh, went through Apple support and got the canned response that said, thanks, uh, you know, expect episodes to update after 24 hours. So they 
who knows? Who knows what happened? It's, it's not the first time it's happened to us. It's not the first time I've heard people say there have been uh, problems delaying episodes on Apple. We just want to make it clear that we have nothing against Riley. We were not trying to uh, deep six his episode. That um, it, it was everywhere else but iTunes. So uh, sorry about that, and uh, hopefully it doesn't happen again. All right. Well, you got to love Apple. Whole got place to. went to crap since Steve Jobs died, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do, take care of some business, and then we're going to get into the questions for this week. Uh, one quick mention before we get uh, talk about Kobo is our friends Christine and JP have a really cool new podcast called The Serial Fiction Show at theserialfictionshow.com. Link will be in the show notes. It is focusing on Vela serials, and, and they have a cool idea. What they're doing is uh, they're interviewing authors, but they have a companion podcast for just the writers. So in one, one episode, they talk about the uh, story from the reader's perspective, and then on the other, they talk to the author about how they created the series. So if you are interested in Vela or just serialized fiction in general, make sure you check out the Serial Fiction Show. Also, if you want to become a patron of the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash writersincpodcast, and you can submit questions for our wonderful Q&A episode, which we're going to do today. Also want to give a shout out to our newest patron. I believe this is a username instead of a name, but this is Holger Nils Pohl. I think I got that. So uh, Nils is probably his first name, I'm going to guess, but we'll go with the username on that one. Don't make assumptions. Yeah, I probably <laughs> His first should. name might be Holger or Holger. Maybe, maybe. Well, he's got a couple questions, so I'll probably pronounce it different here in a minute. He, well, cool. He's busy, he's busy hitting the delete key right now on it. <laughs> 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 all right well as the question asker then uh mr bahannon i'll turn it over to you man that was a terrible segue so it's a, it's okay so all right you guys are ready to answer some questions here bring it on i'm totally caffeinated all right <laughs> so uh we're gonna start off here with uh, actually with the voicemail question from chad boyer hey guys this is chad Here's a question that Jay gets to ask everybody else, and I figured I'd ask the three of you. Where do you think the publishing landscape is going to be in five years? So, JD, let's start with you on that one. Tick tock, tick tock. Um, I, I, <laughs> I I get asked this a lot, and every time I teach a class, like I just did the the master class for for Thriller Fest, um, you know, everybody's trying to figure out what's what's coming, and and I just I see everything getting completely mashed together. Um, traditional publishing melding with indie publishing and, and authors basically I, I think a couple of years from now because it, it's happening now they're going to produce a book they're going to hold it up and they're going to say where's the best place for this and what's the best way to, to get it in front of people um, and then it's just going to go from there and you're going to see a, a hybrid model similar to what I do you know some traditional publishing on, on one particular novel some indie publishing on possibly the same novel in other countries uh, but it's going to be a complete mishmash of, of those different things I, I think like that's, I, I know in my world that's where I'm going um, as I, I look at every book like I, I just went through the spreadsheet with my agent and you know I'm in 150 different countries which is roughly about 25 to 30 languages um, we just went through each of those languages and you know we figured out where she's at as far as selling it in territories where it hasn't sold yet and whatever's left, I'm, I'm out there looking for translators and trying to find out a way to get it out on my own. Um, so, you know, we're kind of fine tuning a, a model there, you know, basically a year after publication, whatever she hasn't sold, I'm kind of stepping up and finding a way to, to fill those voids. Um, but I, I see for myself anyway, that that's where I, I see this going. Um, and I'm talking to a lot of mid-list authors and a lot of authors, you know, even uh, the ones that are doing very well, the ones you see on the New York Times list on a regular basis, and they're looking at that same thing. Because um, traditionally, 
one of the things that's very different um, is traditional publishing tends to focus on the launch of a book. Everything is geared towards that launch. They want to get as many pre-orders as possible. They want to see that huge spike of sales on those first couple of days, um, try and hit that New York Times list. Uh, and then within two or three weeks, all of that kind of fizzles and it either levels out or, or, or disappears. Um, they've, a lot of these traditional authors have books that have been out there for years where there's literally no marketing behind them and they're trying to find some ways to, to make that happen. So they're either getting their rights back and finding ways to, to indie publish those novels uh, or do something with them. But that, that's basically opening that entire world to those people. And, you know, as everybody gets more accustomed to doing that, I think it's just going to become the norm. What about you, Jay? You gotta, yeah, you're I, the one who's always asking the questions. I so. know. I know. It's funny to have it turned around on me. Uh, I totally agree with what JD said. Um, I would I would add too that. I think there's going to be. I think publishing is going to the definition of publishing is going to change too, and and the way I'm envisioning that happening is that uh, you'll have a story, and then that story will be quote unquote published in many different ways. It could be a very traditional novel. It could be a web serial. It could be a video game. It could be any any number of things. I, I really think um, writing. Writing to the specific medium is going to be something that's going to gradually change. So, you know, the, the 80,000 word novel is an artifact of a time when that was the spine width that you had to have on the bookshelf in the bookstore. And we're clearly not in those times anymore. So I, I think that um, for me anyways, as an author, I'm thinking about the story I want to tell and then how can I manifest that story, that same story in different ways and in different formats. Yeah, um, you know, I, I I'll be a little ignorant and say that I don't look that far ahead. <laughs> so it's kind of a it's, a it's a weird thing to and and I don't really don't think about it that much. I will say, you know, for me, like there's going to be ways to publish things and still do what I'm doing, like you know, and just kind of adapt with it. Um, you know, it looks like if you look at the traditional side, obviously that's becoming smaller and smaller as these companies are just basically merging together i think that's going to be interesting to watch um the other thing that i think is going to be really interesting to watch is going to be it's it's only to me it's only a matter of time before the subscription model just takes a hold of the books because it's it's happening everywhere else like you know and it, it's they're obviously out there right now but i think that it's only a matter of time before people are dependent less on buying individual books and or more into subscription model just like they are with movies and music and uh and video it's happening in video games even like microsoft's making a big push for that with xbox like it's just it that's inevitable to me so that's that's one of the big things that i'm keeping my eye on so all right so kim barton um she says uh, i'm struggling to find my voice for my newsletter any advice or will it just take practice and trial and error um jay i want to go to you first for that one uh yeah, this is a tricky question um, because I'm not, I'm not sure you should be looking for the voice. Like I think yeah. it should be there. Like my my initial reaction is the newsletter is where you are just 100% you. Like you talk about things that you like, you share things that you're interested in. Now, everyone has a different approach to what they send their mailing list. Um, some people will send more updates. Uh, that are more promotional, like new books that are coming out of their own or, or of other authors. And other people will send very personal updates. But I think the, the, the point is, the takeaway for, or maybe the answer for Kim's question is, um, I think you're overthinking it if you're, if you're trying to craft a voice for your newsletter. 
Yeah, you said what I was going to say. I was going to say I think that it's just you're kind of overthinking it, and it should just be your voice. So I really – you nailed it. I don't really have anything to add. J.D.? No, I, I totally agree. I mean, my favorite newsletter that I get is the one from Dean Koontz, um, and I, I get it two different formats. He still mails out a physical like pamphlet document every, like four or five times a year, which is awesome to just kind of get in the mail. Uh, but if you get his email newsletter, he writes that whole thing. You know, he sits down, he comes up with all the bad jokes all on his own. You know, and it's it's a personal letter from him to his fans, and to me that that's really cool because I know how many people actually don't write their own. Um, you know, once you get up into that traditional world. Uh, so it's nice to see him doing it. But yeah, you should definitely know, you know, I mean, at, at that point, you should have your own voice. I mean, you're, you're really talking to your friends. Like, that's the way I tend to approach it when I write my own. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm reaching out to the, you know, somebody I haven't talked to for a little while, and I'm writing them a letter. That That's that's kind of how where I'm at. All right, so let's grab, Kim's got another good one here. We'll grab her other question, too. Uh, do you think it's worth the effort to create free stories to offer readers, especially prospective readers, as a marketing strategy? I don't mean just a reader magnet, but stories offered in addition to that. Um, JD, I'm curious what your uh, yeah, me too. I was going to ask him that. to go first on yeah. that one too. <laughs> you know, I, I I see how well it works. Um, I I know you can use free stuff as a lead magnet to bring people in, but it, in my personal experience, every time I've done that, those same people expect to get everything else for free. Um, so I tend to to stay away from it. Um, the closest that I've got going on to that right now is I've been doing a lot of give uh, giveaways through Goodreads. Um, you know, with them being owned by Amazon, you can give away up to a hundred eBooks, and it basically doesn't cost you anything other than the, the cost of the promotion which I think is $120 or so. Um, but you're not paying for those eBooks. Um, and it, it works out on a couple different levels. Your, you, your book automatically gets shelved for these people as a you know, to-be-read on their, their little list, um, which means they get notified anytime something happens with that book. So if it goes on sale or whatever, they get an email automatically from Goodreads telling them that. So that, that's very beneficial. Um, it, it's constantly in their face. Uh, and also when those 100 books drop, it, it actually impacts your ranking as if you just sold 100 books. Um, so that, that's beneficial too. So I, I, I've been experimenting. I've been using uh, She Has a Broken Thing Where Her Heart Should Be, and I've been giving away 100 a week just to see what it does, and it, it seems to be working really well. I mean, across the board, even the, the Kindle reads are up, you know, so that's about as close to that as I'll, I'll get. I don't think I would actually give away a, a novel anymore at this point um, other than, you know, something like that where it's going to benefit me on the back end. Nice. Jay, you got any thoughts on that? Y yeah. Uh, I, I really want to hear what you have to say too, Zach, because I, I think my – my position on this has been slowly changing. Uh, I, I'm not sure free eBooks are worth anything anymore. Like uh, 10 years ago, it was a special, like, oh, a free eBook. Like that was special. There's nothing special about a free eBook now. And um, whether you're talking fiction or nonfiction, uh, I don't know about you guys, but like I probably have folders and folders of free books that I've downloaded or been gifted for getting on a mailing list that I never even open. Um, now I say all that and I have a free trilogy on jthorn.net, which is my giveaway. And I just don't, I, I, I don't think that's an attractive lead anymore. I don't think people who download that read it. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know. I don't know what the next thing is. Um, like how do you, you know, what, what is the incentive to get someone on, on your list or to get prospective readers? And maybe it's, you know, what JD's talking about with some strategic giveaways, but like, I don't know. I, I think the old days of the free reader magnet on the website just aren't n nearly as effective as they once were. Let me just throw something out there. I mean, you, you, I think you have to take a step back and look at what it is you're really trying to accomplish. Are you trying to bring in people that are looking for a bargain or are you trying to bring in people that want to read your next book? 
Um, so I think if, if you put a book out there and it's for sale and they read it and they like it enough, they're going to want to pick up that next book. Like you, you want people that are scrambling when they close that cover looking for your next title. Um, and you want those people, you know, if it's at a certain price point, like in my case, you know, most of my books are around 10 bucks. You know, if I do something for free, you know, somebody's going to be looking for something for free or at least on the cheap. You know, if, if they buy a book at $10, they like it a lot. They want another you know story. They want to hear my voice again. They're going to be okay with spending that extra $10. And, and I see that in my sales. So I know that works as well. Um, you know, and I've done the, the other route too. I, I gave away copies of Forsaken for almost a year and, and bumped up my, my newsletter list and did all of that. But all, all it did was just cost me more to send out emails at that point. It didn't really impact my sales in, in any legitimate way. The only ways I've been able to make free work for me is I, I, I do still think that the perma-free book one in a series still can work if you're wide. Um, uh, if you're uh, now, I want to also say if you're in Kindle Unlimited, don't do a perma-free book one. <laughs> I get asked that all the time. That's a terrible strategy. Make sure your book one is also in Kindle Unlimited if all your other books are. Um, but if you're going wide and you have, especially if you have like a, five, six book series. I still think perma-free book one can work because I, I definitely saw a lot of read through on my series when I did that, uh, especially if I did a promotion on that book one uh, for free. Um, the other thing is uh, offering the sec like, so in my empty body series, I offer the second book for free for sign up from a mailing list. And that really works because I, I get a lot of mailing list signups. And I feel like since people did just read the first book, and if they want to go to the second, they will take the time to download it and then hopefully buy the other books in the series after that. And uh, I have data that says that's what people do. So um, those two things work. But other than that, like, <clears throat> I mean, Jay and I even did like the bonus short story for a couple of trilogies, you know, and I don't feel like that really got us a bunch of mailing list signups or people cared that much, you know. So, uh, yeah, those are the only two things that really worked for me. So. All right, um, <clears throat> let's go to one of Chris Wills's questions here. Um, he asks, what do each of you think are three necessary elements of a bestseller? And he's talking like 100,000 plus sales. Um, ignoring author names, sales, and marketing. I don't know how you can ignore all those things, but uh, <laughs> they could be three things that stood out for you from a bestseller you have read or three things you suggest one might try to include in a novel. Um, well, that's a JD question. <laughs> that's definitely a JD question. Yeah. I, I don't think I have the answer for that any more than anybody else would. I mean, I, I think you, everybody shoots for the same thing. It's got to be a strong cover. It's got to be, you know, a, a lot of buzz. I mean, ultimately, it's word of mouth that takes anything to the bestseller list for you know, any reasonable amount of time. Or, you know, it, it, otherwise, everything is just bought and paid for. You know, you can put a million dollars behind a title. You can get it on the New York Times list by doing that. But the second week, it's not going to be there anymore unless people are reading it and they like it and they talk about it and tell their friends to buy it. Um, so that's got to be the thing. I, I think right now, if you want to look at a real world example, go out there and take a look at TJ Newman and what's what's happening there. You know, this is a, a flight attendant who wrote a book standing in the back of a plane, sold it for you know millions of dollars, sold film rights for millions of dollars. Um, that book debuted at number two on the, the, the list. Um, that's no accident because when a publisher pays that kind of money, they're obviously going to put a lot of money behind it to make sure it gets there so they can try to recoup. Um, so it's important to get that, that big advance. Um, you know, all these different things have to come together. Um, you know, she, they've got a great title. They've got a great cover. And the back of the book blurb, one, one of the few things that I have noticed on bestsellers is if, if a back of the book it, blurb is very short, um, but is so concise, it makes you want to pick up that book. It's a winner. 
Um, you know, like her black back of the book blurb is, is very short. There's very little to it, but you know, two or three sentences and you have to read that book. Um, and Riley touched on this the other day, you know, he drills down, you know, when he sends his, his pitches to his editor, he drilled it down to, to six words for his latest book. You know, like he was able to describe it at that level. And, you know, I think the fact that he could do that, you know, that means that the hook is just that strong. And if the hook is that strong, I think everything else is going to, going to trickle down and translate. Yeah. I think just to add really quick and then we'll move to the next question. I think it's just important. There's no formula. No, not <laughs> there's, at all. there's no, there's no bestseller formula. Like, it's just, it takes, uh, echo what JD said, but, you know, there's also a lot of luck involved. <laughs> I mean, that's just, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Well, so. the, the thing is, everybody tries to figure out the formula in hindsight. And my wife went through this exercise when Gone Girl came out. If, if you looked at the year prior to Gone Girl, there were only a handful of books that came out with the word girl in the title. And after Gone Girl, the following year, there were 400 of them. Um, yeah, every, everybody looks at that. They try to create a formula where there really isn't one, and then they try to replicate it. And to a certain extent, it works because Girl on a Train, you know, that that one came out yeah. right after. Um, but, you know, again, a lot of things have to line up. It has to be a perfect storm. For sure. All right. So let's uh, go to um, Kristen uh, Matthews says, what's the best piece of advice you have received or given in regards to writing? Jay? Uh, best God, there's like 80 things running through my head as far as, um, advice goes. I mean, I've been given this and I've, uh, I've given it, so I'll go with it. Like writers write and, and that just, <laughs> it sounds so basic, but, um, we've all met those writers who take all the courses, they watch all the videos, they listen to all the podcasts, they read all the books but they don't do the writing. Like you, you got to produce the words. Uh, it's just that simple. And I, I, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but for me, I'd say that's, that's the best or most common piece of advice I've given and received. Yeah, that, that's true for sure. I mean, it's no different than going to the gym, right? Like you're not going to get in shape unless you're actually there, you know, four or five times a week. But you um, look cool walking in the door. You do. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, the, one, the, the advice that hit home for me uh, personally was, was James Patterson. He told me that at, at the, stop, like the top of every notepad that he uses on his monitor on his computer, he's got two words, be there. Like he writes that down on everything before he actually starts writing. And I, I started doing that too. And like, if you just think about that, you know, you write a paragraph, you write a scene or whatever, you know, read through it. Does it feel like you are really in there in that moment, really living it with those characters? And if you don't, if you don't feel that, then, then something's off and you've got to go back and revamp it. Um, that's changed a lot about the way that I, I write um, for, for the better. So two words I think can, can definitely help. But, you know, like, like Jay said, you have to be there writing every day in order for any of that to make any difference. I'll take I'll take a slightly different angle than you are and talk about advice that I like to give out, um, which, you know, anytime I get asked about um, like g how I was able to go full time, you know, I, often most often people phrase it some way like how did you make how did you start making enough money off your books where you could go full time? And I always tell them, I'm like, well, I think you're kind of asking the wrong question because um, the advice I always like to give is, you know, you, you can't, how do I want to say this? Like a lot, oftentimes it's easier to control the money you have going out than what you have coming in. So basically what I'm getting at is I, I tell people that a bigger reason I was able to go full time had way more to do with the fact that my wife and I got out of, like, we didn't have any debt or anything like that. And, um, you know, we just have a very low, um, like 
the way we live is just super minimal. So um, I just, you know, you don't have to make as much money when you don't have as much going out. Like, I mean, we're comfortable and we're doing fine. But, you know, that's like the thing I try to tell people is just, you know, try to focus on what you can. Because for me, as we've talked about before, like having my freedom is much more important to me than having a bunch of stuff and having things. So uh, I guess that'd be my answer to take a slightly different angle than y'all. So and bring it back to the financial podcast we had going on earlier. <laughs> um, let's see. Let's do. Uh, we got a few more minutes here. We could probably get a couple more of these in. Um, Holly Starkey. Uh, she's, this is a good JD question. Um, what are your recommendations for getting started in ghostwriting? Oh, that I get that a lot. And, you know, like I've talked about how I, I got into it and I, I, I fell into that. Like it wasn't, you know, like a career that I pursued or, or anything like that. I mean, I was just really good at correcting punctuation and grammar and then people just started handing me stuff and it just sort of grew from there. Um, Honestly, the only way I could see somebody going into it would be to just approach people. You know, a lot of the, the most lucrative projects I've worked on have been for sports figures. You know, I did one for a basketball player, um, a lot of politicians. I've, I just finished one up for, for somebody that was almost our president. Um, that's coming out in about another six months. Um, you know, so I, I approach a lot of, or I, I used to approach a lot of people like that. So if you have people around you, like, you know, go up to them, you know, if it's somebody that you feel could have a book out there or should have a book out there and doesn't have that conversation with them. You know, when you're asking for that, that autograph at the, you know, at the football stadium or whatever, you know, bring it up. You know, you got a couple seconds to try and talk to them just like anything else. And worst thing they're going to do is say no, but you know, you never know. They might say, you know, I've been thinking about that, but I have no clue how to write a book and just hand them your email address and just kind of go from there. You have to throw those feelers out. And, and once you get, a, you know, you do that a couple of times, if you write one or two of them, you get a reputation for it. Your name starts getting passed around. And that's kind of the boat that I was in you know where people start looking for you because you've done it before so that's that's the only way i could think of where you could really break into it nice all right let's see if we can get uh, i want to see if we can get both of holger's questions in since holger is new here so <clears throat> see if we can get both these in real quick then we can call it a day um so first question is if you break it down in a rough estimate how much of your working time hold on let me how much of your working time on any day do you spend on writing versus publishing? Meaning like marketing, preparing the book pages on the platforms and such. Uh, also related question, what is the first thing you'd outsource? Jay, let's start. I know your answer is gonna be interesting because you time block. So like you don't necessarily spend time doing all those things every single day. Well, I'll tell you what else is is going to be different about my response is that I'm, I'm the odd man out here because you guys make your, I think you make most of your revenue from your, from your book royalties. And I don't, I, I make most of my revenue through author services. So it, it doesn't make sense for me to be focusing on, on my writing every single day. In fact, a lot of my day is spent working with clients, having zoom calls, um, you know, tending to my author community, uh, so I think the I think the assumption in the question is, you know, if you are publishing fiction, how much time should you be spending on the writing part? And um, so for me, I don't know. Like I I don't feel like my my response is going to be very helpful because I'm not I'm not living off my fiction. JD, what about uh, you? 
Yeah, so I'm an Aspie, so my, my schedule is very, very rigid as far as what I do every day. Uh, first thing I always do is knock out my words. So I, I'm usually, I'm in my chair at my desk about 7.30 or so in the morning. Um, by 8 o'clock, I'm, I'm writing, and I usually knock out my two to 3,000 words by 11. Um, I purposely don't block anything out time-wise until after 12 o'clock. Um, so I've got a scheduling system, and my assistant knows, my publishers know. The only time you can book me for anything is between 12 and 2.30. Um, so any foreign interviews, any anything that I have to do that's not writing is is between that that particular time. Um, so like even like when we finish up here, like I've got a, a conference call about one of our film projects. Like they, you know, they're in California, so it's like it's a weird time for them to have to book, but they know they have to, to fall within that window. Um, that that works for me. Um, the first thing that I outsourced was my social media stuff. Um, cause I, I still to this day have no clue whether it, it, it moves the needle in, in any way whatsoever, but it was worthwhile for me to hire somebody to, you know, handle Facebook and handle Instagram and, and those kind of things for me. Um, just to, so I don't have to deal with it. You know, one of these days we'll, we'll see whether I keep that as part of the business model or not, but right now I'm, I'm paying somebody to do that. Whenever, if I get to a point where I have to have social media, in other words, if I try to get a publisher and they want me to have it, that's going to be what I hire out because <laughs> I'm not, yeah. I'm not doing it. So and I've personally seen my book sales go up since I quit doing it. So like, that's all the data I have. Um, but, um, but yeah, like for me, you know, my schedule is kind of weird because I'm in, have the dad mode thing going on because of my wife's job, you know? So, um, I pretty much batch all my, any kind of administrative and marketing stuff. Like I batch all that on Wednesday and Friday afternoons because those are the two long days I have. Every other day I'm just focused on writing and the time I have because I don't get, I don't work full days those days. Um, you know, and, and I and I understand the spirit of the question here, but I don't think, there again, there's no formula. There's no answer. Like, and, and I think the other thing to keep in mind is like, just, you know, the three of us are full time, you know, and, and well, even Jay said though, Jay's not necessarily a full time writer, you know, like does a lot of other things, you know. Um, but uh, again, there's no formula and it's going to be different for everybody. And um, I don't I, I don't write more than I did when I had a full time job necessarily either. <laughs> like that's I think that's another misconception. Like uh, I, I kind of there's only so many words I can do in a day, whether I have whether I have all the time to do it or not. Like my brain can only do so much. So I think that's an important thing to remember too. Well, the other thing you just kind of touched on there is, is family time. You know, one of the things you have yeah. to really try to figure out when you you know work full time in any job, if you're doing it from home is when to ring that quitting bell. Um, because I, I, a lot of people don't know when to do that. And in this world, it can get very difficult to, to do because, you know, like if you know, in my case, I've got interview requests coming in from all around the world. So, you know, obviously there's different time zones going on, uh, but I make all of them like that. You know, I've got a hard stop at, you know, two thirty, three o'clock every day, no matter what, because I want to go for a walk and a run. I want to, you know, relax. I want to sit down and spend the rest of the evening with my family. And I, I don't want to have to pick up, you know, from watching TV with my daughter or whatever it is we're doing to go and do something business related. Um, so I think you have to figure out where to draw that line in the sand as well. Cool. <clears throat> we want to try to get one more quick one in here, Jay. We have time for that. Yeah, if it's the one I'm looking at, it's kind of related to this one, anyways. So one, yeah, why not? So it's the one at the bottom. So we'll just—is that the one you were looking at? Oh, uh, the when do you read one? Is that the one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's kind of built on on this one. So do you want to? We'll just roll with this one. So yeah. So set another question from Holger. Uh, he basically just wants to know, like, when do we read? Um, like, he, you know, asked how our, well, yeah, it's kind of built on the same thing. So when do you guys read? We'll end on this one. 
Um, so I, yeah, I, I stick to that same rigid schedule. So two thirty, three o'clock, I call it quits every day. So I, I fill the time after I'm done writing with reading, you know, like, so 1245, if I don't have anything going on until one I'll, I'll pick up a book. Um, the ones that I read in the early part of the day are the ones that, you know, at this point I'm kind of required to read. So that they're the ARCs that come into me from publishers or from my agent where they want me to blurb stuff. So it's kind of like work related reading. Um, at, at night when I want to relax, then I, that's, you know, usually right before bed, that's where I read something that I actually want to read. Um, you know, we, we don't watch a whole lot of TV at night. We tend to, to read before bed. So that's where I'll pick up a book that I actually want to read and, and try to relax a little bit. So I, I mix it up. Cool. Yeah, Jay. I have a similar situation. I have, for the for the podcast interviews, I have books I have to read. Now, sometimes there are also books I want to read, and, and that, that that's nice. But let's be honest, not all of them. Uh, you know, I don't love every book I read. Nobody does. But those are sort of more like work. And then... Uh, and then in the evening, uh, the same way I don't really, um, I watch maybe half an hour of TV while I eat lunch. That's pretty much it. Um, and then at night, uh, after I hang out with the family, maybe go for a walk with the wife, then I'll spend an hour or two reading and, and that can be everything from fiction to nonfiction. Um, and that, that's pretty much it for me. Like I, I outside of the workday, I don't do anything else on a screen, um, except that half hour of, of watching Netflix during lunch and then. I'm reading most of the other times. Yeah, reading is uh, the first thing I do in a day and the last thing. So I, when I wake up in the morning, I read for a little bit before I hit the desk. And then I usually read a little bit before I go to bed. So um, unless I'm – if I'm in, like, heavy process of editing a book, though, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, my friend Brittany, I think, who's writing her first book. Like, I can't read. It's really hard for me to read when I'm <laughs> – can you guys do that when you're in the editing phase of a book? Oh, man, it's just a weird thing with me, maybe. I can, but I think it's partly because of the way I break up my day. So, like, editing or reading ARCs, like, I, I, I see where you're coming from. Like, I'll pick up an ARC and I start moving commas around and, and yeah. correcting typos and, and things like that. Um, but the, the stuff that I tend to read at night is usually pretty polished, at that, you know, because it's, it's done and gone and, and published. So, uh, J.D., who's coming up next week on the podcast? Next week, we've got Karen Slaughter. Um, now, if, if, if she's got a book coming out um, called False Witness. It releases July 20th. Um, so I guess it, it just came out by the time this, this airs. Um, fantastic book. And it's one of the few that I've read recently that actually touches on COVID. So her characters are living in the same world that, that we are, all, all masked up and social distancing and all that fun stuff within her book, um, which was just fun to read because, you know, like she's still describing facial expressions and all these different things going on, you know, but behind a mask, um, you know, which is a, a challenging thing to do i don't know that i would do it but most authors that i know at this point they're kind of pretending COVID didn't happen as they're writing um you know stephen king like in billy summers he purposely moved the book forward one year and said it in 2019 just so he wouldn't have to deal with it um so yeah cool read and, and karen is a, a lot of fun um you know the first time i actually saw her do anything in person she was interviewing gillian flynn at uh, thriller fest um and they had that entire room just completely breaking up like the one-liners that come out of her are just are crazy like she's got the one of the funniest senses of humor uh, ever. Um, so I'm looking forward to that one. All right. Well, that's it. Let's ro- right. take us out, Jay. Nice. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.